0: Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love
1: all in one trip to Virginia.
0: Start yours at virginia.org.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudeman. Today's episode was one of my favorite ever to record. My guest is Bob Sutton, a business professor at Stanford and the author of many great books, including The No Asshole Rule. Now, when I first started blogging, Bob was an icon to me. And in this episode, you're going to hear me be a fangirl. And we talk about organizations, hierarchy, asshole managers, and friction. Since I never went to graduate school, and God knows I could never get into Stanford, I'm using this podcast to test out my theories about work and failure. Bob was really great. He was generous with his time and he was on board with wherever this conversation went. So sit tight. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Bob Sutton, and I'll be right back with Let's Fix Work.
0: Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's Fix Work Together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Lori Rudeman and I have the best guest today. I am so excited. With me is Professor Bob Sutton. Bob, how you doing?
2: I'm doing great, and it's a delight to talk to you, Lori.
1: Now, do you expect people call you doctor or professor, or are you more chill than that?
2: Oh, no. I like Bob. I don't even like Robert because Robert is what my mother called me when I was bad. So no, doctor, professor, I I don't do very well with that.
1: All right. That's good because I don't like hierarchy and we'll talk about that in a second, but (laughs) I know you and I can bond over something in that we find management and managers to kind of be a weird, broken landscape from time to time.
2: And you've written
1: that sometimes the best management is no management at all. And I think your theory is first do no harm. So I read a story about JFK and management by walking out of the room. So in general, can you talk to me about managers and how a hands-off approach might be the best approach sometimes?
2: Sure. So, so um, in this context, there's two problems, although we need managers. We can talk about this. There's two problems that managers create wittingly or unwittingly. The first one is they overestimate their value. And there's my uh, co-author and crazy colleague, Jeff Effer, has all sorts of evidence That the more closely a manager watches people, uh, the more advice they give them, the better they will rate the work regardless of the quality of the work. So there's this illusion that the the more micromanagement you do, the better the work is. So that's the first problem, okay? And
1: by the way, that sounds like parenting, right? You think the more advice you give to your children, the better off they're doing?
2: So the exact so so this this issue the sort of tightrope walking of when to push versus when to pop, back off in both parenting and management it's the biggest challenge it, it really well we could just talk about that forever <laughs> uh, the, but but the second thing is is a specific another problem which is uh, managers aren't just benign that when people have who have authority are in the room um, it there's all sorts of evidence that it has a stifling effects and in, in particular um, people are afraid to disagree with the boss and with one another. And so, so the Bay of Pigs Kennedy story is, there, is that there are these nuclear weapons they found 90 miles away. Just Cuba's very close, and they've got evidence that the Russians are bringing them in with ships in, in the, or the, the Soviet Union in those days. And, Do we attack? And, and they're all arguing. And so what uh, Kennedy does is he breaks them into, um, I believe it was three different groups, and he leaves. And the reason that that he did it was because he believed that his effect was stifling. And also, we know this when you have too big of a group, it creates all sorts of problems. So this idea of management by walking out of the room, um, and I've also, the person I talk about um, in, in that uh, in that post is uh, David Kelly, the founder of IDEO. And, and David is the, it's, it's like his management techniques. He'll bring people together. He also hates meetings. So he solves two problems at once and he invites everybody to start going. And I just have seen him do this now hundreds of times. And he kind of moves to the side. Then he walks to the back and then he leaves.
1: I love and, it. I love it. That's so, so smart.
2: But, 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 but so to me, there's some leadership there because he's convenient but he has the sense to get out of the way because he's often introducing people who ordinarily wouldn't talk to one another. So anyways.
1: No, I think that's really interesting because um, in in those examples, there is a leader in the room. There is a manager. But from my perspective, I'm suspicious of managers and I'm really suspicious of hierarchy. You know, I'm a bit of a contrarian. That's kind of what (laughs) I'm known for. But you write that companies need managers to some extent and need hierarchy. And I, I don't know about that because I think... People should learn to be healthy adults and manage themselves, but they don't do it because of paternalism or, uh, you know, this outdated hierarchical structure that we have or implicit bias or institutional racism or sexism or just family of origin bullshit that we bring to the work environment. And then we think Uh we can't manage ourselves, right? We're incapable. So, all right, this is a weird question to ask and tell me if you're tracking with it. You hear me that I don't believe in hierarchy, okay. but I believe in you, Bob. I believe in you. I'm a big fan. Well,
2: well, so, well, well, <laughs> so, so, me, we can disagree because, you know, when, what's that? When two people always agree, it's yeah. unnecessary. So, so, so do we
1: need it? Do we need managers? Well, do we need hierarchy? Because we do need to get shit done in the workforce,
2: right? So, so my my here's my bias. My bias is that we need as little as we can get away with, but we need some. And 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 so a lot of, and, and there's a difference between bad hierarchy and no hierarchy. And so to go back, this is partly academic and partly existence proof. Um, and I'm stealing this in part from research done by other people, of course. Because I have oh no please idea. please
1: steal. Nobody's listening. It's all right.
2: <laughs> so, no no no. It's uh, Deb Grunfeld um, is is one of the people who's done this. So any so, so so their argument, which I agree with, is is that is that um, they can't find any animal. Or human group of any size that doesn't have something like a pecking order so the question is 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 it possible to organize work so so that's the existence proof argument and and then we start seeing examples of people who really hate hierarchy managers and remove them or build organizations without them and they they tend to fall apart or they tend to not exist i'll give you two quick local stories one funny the other one to which gets to your by the way sexual harassment and all that sort of stuff so uh, so one is uh, and we heard this directly from the source larry page uh, of google fame so he's growing google it gets about 200 people in and, and he starts believe it or not missing the good old days when they had no managers
1: yeah so i can page, see that yeah on
2: so one poor slob has um but there's still some hierarchy. He, but notice, you say there's no hierarchy, but he's the top of the hierarchy. and He gets rid of the hierarchy. So, so that, that, there's some hierarchy there. But he screws up, and so uh, the poor head of engineering has 150 um, Googlers reporting to him, and he can't. It's just out of control. No, that's chaos. I get that. Yeah. So, 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 so what they will say at Google now, and they actually have the evidence that 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 the team leader might be the most important person, at least in the technical company, the technical part of the company. So. uh, so, so they've. So you need this sort of middle structure just to have get rid of chaos. But then the other problem, which is more serious, um, in having seen the most dysfunctional of organ of Silicon Valley uh, startups, uh, Uber certainly would qualify. But but the one that that I'm going to talk about, um, a GitHub, which was just bought for seven point five billion dollars by Microsoft. Oh yeah, there's everybody it, knows. It. Yeah. There's an interesting story there, which is in the very early days, you can sort of read about how we had no hierarchy and we can do whatever we want. And, 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 and they were using adhocracy, or well, they didn't even mean to know what adhocracy meant, which by the way is very hierarchical. Adhocracy is hierarchical. They don't have managers, but there's a hierarchy. So anyways, so, so what happened was under this kind of anything goes situations, why do you have like 90% tech bros and 10% women, okay? And I talked to, to uh, Chris Wandsworth before I knew he was going to be worth $7.5 billion. I was talking about scaling. And, and, and the reason was that his venture, I started talking about the virtue of hierarchy and his venture capitalist said, you got to talk to Chris because they tried the ad hocracy thing. Things went out of control. They had horrible uh, sexual harassment assault problem. Uh, one of the co-founders got forced out and Chris took over and Chris said, I'm really a nice guy, but, but you need... Sometimes you need some sort of controls. And so the problem is in that situation, when sexual harassment and assault happen, the, the, the problem of who the woman even went to.
1: Yeah, I so, can see that.
2: Absolutely. So, 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 so yeah. the, the question of where the appeal goes to, well, anything goes, then you're sort of in, a, um, in, in, in sort of a, a crazy Lord of the Flies rule. So, well,
1: between, so, so but between Lord of the Flies and an old school militaristic style way of running a company where people don't have a voice and don't have agency, there's something in the middle, right? Yes, yes, yes. Organized yes and, and we're responsible and accountable and we have agents.
2: So, so, so to that point, so this is – I don't know if you, you should get Patty McCord in your podcast if we haven't yet of Netflix playing. Yeah, no, I've so, met her a
1: few times, but please, you know, hook me up, man. That's she's, she's
2: a, 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 and, and so when I did the podcast with her – and Patty and I argue a little bit, she's so into fully formed adults that she will claim that, you know, at Netflix, so so to the extent you have fully formed adults, to the extent you have a strong culture, and one thing we can talk about maybe later, so these things are things that dampen the need for hi, for a hierarchy, and especially command and controls, you have fully formed adults, We we have agreement about what's good and bad behavior, right? And that, and that, this is sort of Chip Connolly's argument about Airbnb, or and um, and then one thing that I'm really into, and this is the friction stuff too, is when people have rhythms of the work. Then they'd act. You don't have to micromanage so much because everybody kind of knows what needs to be done. So,
1: yeah, man, you're so on the same wavelength. I get that, right? So, yeah.
2: So, so I'm into damp. And then there's a difference between having an authority si- system and having authoritarian assholes um, in the authority system. So so some of it is who get promoted. Are people um, who get promoted? Are they people who uh, so the best leaders are probably guilt prone leaders there's some evidence from my uh, my buddy he's not even jewish and he did this research so it's just fabulous he's catholic they have plenty of their <laughs> Well
1: cult. that's a, yeah that's good enough
2: <laughs> so so, so, uh, so he's got this evidence that some of the best leaders are guilt prone so and can the, you
1: tell us what guilt prone means
2: guilt prone means that they're always worried about um, other people around them how they're feeling whether they're contributing enough whether they're involved enough they're not thinking about themselves so they're is not
1: empathy sh-
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's some empathy but it's also some empathy is complicated because a, a lot of people have empathy some people have empathy they use it to exploit and bring they know how you're feeling and they they're selfish so they have empathy and but they also have the guilt and it's it's different than shame people who feel ashamed they don't want to they feel terrible and don't want to be around other people and don't want to help so it's guilt it's 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 there's they've got a couple academic it's guilt proneness so a guilt-prone leader you think about it uh, it's the exact opposite of a narcissist they're constantly you know doing things on behalf of other people and so frank has a great line i said so frankly this guilt-prone stuff this is great stuff he said yeah it's great for the team it's hell on them They're just (laughs) constantly worried about other people. It's like how they're feeling. Exhausting.
1: You don't want to do that as a manager. So all right, let me ask you this. If I'm starting up a new organization tomorrow, right? Any like three best practices around management, structure, and hierarchy, what have you got?
2: For a new organization,
1: well, I don't know any organization, right? I mean, uh, what's the three best takeaways for someone who's listening to this podcast.
2: Oh God, I, I mean, so 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 let's take a small startup because that actually that actually that is is kind, of, yeah. is kind of the easiest. Yeah. Uh, so you have somebody who is driven and focused, but actually cares about other people. So so the way so, so some of the guilt and stuff, but the 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 attitude we would say is that they have strong opinions weakly held. So that's the whiz, So And those are kind of the best leaders. that they really, really are committed to doing something and they're really pushing harder from the back of their mind, gee, I might be wrong. So, so I, guess, I guess that would, that would be one. Um, I, I guess that um, a second one is that uh, they realize they can't do it all themselves, so they bring in people who offset, so this is part of the wisdom thing, they offset their weaknesses. So Mark Zuckerberg, who is not doing so well lately, I got oh, to admit.
1: No, no he's but, not, yeah.
2: But one of the things that I did admire about Mark for a long period of time, and, uh, and uh, I see it in at CAD Mill at Pixar, is that their definition of people that they should uh, bring in are people who have complementary skills and emotional styles, to themselves so they so they bring in they bring in a complete team so i, I guess those are sort of sort of uh of two things but those those are the things uh that i that i look for and uh and then i, I guess some resilience would be nice too because uh, when you start a company there's a hell of a lot of failure
1: I love it. I love it. And we're going to talk about failure in the second half. You know, as we wrap up this segment, I want to talk briefly about your awesome book, The No Asshole Rule, right? I mean, this is the book, right? Did I get that title right? I think Yeah, I there's The No yeah. Asshole
2: Rule, and then there's The Asshole Survival Guide. So yeah, yeah, for- yeah. So yeah. two related books, yes.
1: Buy them both, everybody. So, all right. I love this book. It was very formative with me and on my um, writing style and just really what I think about the world. And you write that if you are plagued by an asshole or a pack of them, make a clean getaway If you can if you can't develop a strategy for protecting yourself and fellow victims from the onslaught For preserving your dignity and spirit and for fighting back And I think this feels relevant right now with everything Mm -hmm. that's happening with me too and the spectrum of all those asshole behavior but Do you have quick and dirty advice because I keep hearing from listeners? Who really feel they're stuck and they can't leave so how do you protect yourself?
2: well so I, you know, I wish I could give you like the glib one minute answer, but when we, when all of us have been in situations yeah. like that and it's hell and, and to me, it's sort of a continuum. Okay. So if you can't get out and it's better to get out, all the evidence is, is it's so bad for you. There's a hundred thousand studies that show really it's bad for your mental and physical health to be around people who leave you feeling demeaned and de-energized. If you can't get out to me, there's uh sort of three different clumps of sp- Strategies. The first one is to treat it like kryptonite. And to the extent possible, literally um, have shorter interactions, have less interactions. So people have written me with these remarkably skilled methods that they use to know when the schedule of the worst asshole is. And, and to even do advanced scouting work with the executive assistant to see what – so, so they, these really elaborate techniques to avoid exposure. And one of my favorite ones, Steve Jobs, just simply calling him as an asshole is too complicated. But So I meet this guy in the executive program, and he said, so I was at Apple for 25 years, and really going to meetings with Steve wasn't always that pleasant. And so I always had the strategy that I would sit as far away from him as possible on the same side of the table. And you think about it, we've all been in kind of squarish conflict. That's the seat where they can't look you in the eye. And he said, (laughs) if if you sat next to him, you would, the odds you would get insulted and or um, end up working late for two weeks were really high. So I just tried to literally like avoid isn't that sort of amazing? That and is so
1: creative. Oh my God! If that well, creativity was, could be channeled for other work in this world, that that would be so much more helpful than avoiding the asshole that was Steve Jobs.
2: That's right. And, and, but he was he was more complicated than that. I, yeah, like I course. just calling him an asshole is too Um com- uh, And that's the other thing is that there's temporary and uh, certified assholes and, and 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 so one of the problems with like like people engage in sexual harassment assault um, extreme. Race all this sort of stuff. Like, yeah, I think that, of but, but, but there's sort of lower level stuff that's more complicated. So, but then there's another set of techniques for those of us, including me who had cognitive behavioral therapy. I kind of stole them from cognitive behavioral therapy. So this is finding ways uh, to, to, you can't change the objective stimuli, but have it not hurt so much. See the humor in it, um, do things, there's, there's great research on temporal distancing or time travel that, and, and people would write me about this, like a guy's at the military or the Air Force Academy. And he said, I just imagine it, when, you know, the, 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 he's a plebe and the, the classman's in his face screaming at him. I just imagine it's a year and a half later and I'm flying. Oh and my so, it, it, so it's like literally this time.
1: Beautiful. yeah, yeah. And also, how many of us dealt with our childhood? Yeah, I can see the CBT parallels there. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I, it's that's all it's all because the whole thing, and that's the disadvantage of CBT is a lot of time it's about changing your interpretation of the situation when you can't change the change the situation. And in my favorite one, since I. I um, write about assholes and study assholes, but I didn't come up with this. So Stanford, with all due respect, like any large bureaucracy, we have plenty of assholes, not any more than our share, but we've got our share. And so there's a brilliant administrator. I better not use his name. I always used it. And he uses this technique that when he's in a meeting with uh, somebody who's an asshole, he starts pretending that he's an asshole-ologist. And, he's so, and he says to himself, he's so lucky to st- to be this close to such an amazing specimen and, and <laughs> I I just could like like I've never I can't do that how can no. so I'm trying to do it but but I think he has better mental health than I do but so, but but in all of these cases the disadvantages that that you're not changing yourself the advantages it's just like we've all been on the six-hour airplane flight next to the unpleasant person who isn't so bad you have to you just think about when it's over you imagine you're somewhere else you don't take it personally so sometimes you got to do that and then the fighting back is very complicated but the main thing for and i think you can see this in me too you can see it in uh one thing doesn't talk about much but uh, what happened with sexual assault in the catholic church there's kind of um at least two things that you need to fight back in situations where the authorities aren't reasonable. I mean, if you have an asshole boss who's a reasonable person and you pull them aside and have a conversation with them, that actually works in some situations, especially if people don't mean it. But if you're a truly sort of mobbing bad situation or have, a, have one, you know, Harvey Weinstein or something. So the, the things that, that we see that always seem to be characteristics is one, they're well documented. And 2 they bond together and form a big enough group that they have some power, and you can't accuse them of being a crazy individual. I and, love and it.
1: That's what we're seeing right now, isn't that's it? What
2: that's what we're exactly. seeing. It's, yeah. I mean, look what happened with Bill Cosby. I mean, and Harvey Weinstein. And uh, and you're so, right.
1: The Catholic Church is a great parallel. You can't deny when hundreds of thousands of people start to rise up and talk about their yes. you know, stories. Suddenly, it's a real thing. Absolutely, that makes sense but, to me.
2: But but when you're a lone victim and you're trying to fight a whole bunch of bullies, it's uh, or nasty people who are. It's really a tough situation. So it is one of those things that, that uh, there is strength in numbers and 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 so fi- find in even little situations where uh, like this woman wrote me. She was an animal control officer and uh, so dog catcher. And, and they had an asshole colleague who was also racist, and, and she was driving them all nuts. And they complained to the boss, nothing would happen. But then they, they wrote what they called the asshole diaries. They spent three weeks. They recorded every nasty thing she did. They brought it to her boss, and, they got, and then she was gone. Amazing. So it, 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 that doesn't work sometimes. I mean, ask some of the people who worked for Fox News it did not yeah, work in, no it didn't, for, yeah. for years but uh, but but and ask be, a lot of
1: people in HR about the power of documenting and you go eh, you know eh, we document stuff in HR all the time and depending on who we're documenting it doesn't work but in some cases it does I hear you that's really interesting
2: yeah you know, what's a, that's just part of well uh, I mean uh, Gretchen Carlson tape recording Roger Ailes. That's what brought him down. I mean, she, she had on tape that, which, by the way, is legal in New York and unlawful in the state of California. So you got to be careful who you record. But yeah, that's
1: your- that's good advice. Well, listen, uh, when we come back, we're going to try not to be so depressing because we're going to talk about your new favorite topic, which is friction. Are you ready for that in the second half? Yes. Yes. All right. All right, everybody. We'll be right back after the break with more of Let's Fix Work. You know, I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now, I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on.
0: I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying.
1: I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lori Rudiman, and I'm here today with a special guest, Bob Sutton. Bob, how are you doing? Did you survive the first half?
2: Yeah, it was pretty painful, but I'm okay.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. As I'm learning how to podcast, I would love any feedback or tips. Now, you've got a new podcast out, right? And it's called Friction. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what is organizational friction and maybe what you've learned?
2: Sure. So so we're, I guess, three episodes into our second season. It's, it's produced. I'm lucky to have a team at Stanford and the Stanford uh, Technology Ventures Program or eCorner. Um, and so the, the idea is that my co-author Huggy Rao and I, we did a bunch of work on scaling up excellence and what it takes to spread uh, good ideas and practices across organizations, what it takes to grow organizations. But one thing that we kept noticing in organizations when we track them from being little to big or just looking at big organizations, that there would be all these things that were just so hard to do. And just so frustrating, and then this idea of um, just over time, uh, things would become the same things, like uh, setting a meeting, getting an expense done, just hiring somebody, getting somebody promoted, um, that, that it would be friction, frustration, and fatigue, and, and it would just sort of bring everybody down to the point where they sometimes would feel helpless and not try. So, so that was the bad news. And, 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 but the good news was that once we started talking to people about organizational friction, um, that they would also talk about uh, the notion that there's some things that actually should be harder to do in organizations, bad behavior, certainly, but also in the world of creativity and innovation, some of the things that we saw is, on the scale up, people would try to scale up things were bad ideas or weren't finished and, and they'd screw everything up. So there's sometimes times when you need to sort of slow things down. So, so this tension between making things hard and making things easy is what we're interested in. And we're, we're interested in, um, in, in, in essentially stories about when friction is good, when friction is bad and how to deal with it. So we're, we're doing a whole bunch of things in addition to the podcast, we're doing case studies and so on. Um, but, um, uh, talking to lots of smart people, but we're also, um, doing podcasting like you because it's a great excuse to talk to smart people.
1: I love it. That's exactly what this is. You know, every time I speak to someone like you, I learn a ton and I wonder what the most surprising or interesting thing you've learned uh, during Mm. podcasting is. Like, what story have you heard that's really surprised you about friction?
2: I don't no, it's, but in terms of what we've learned, and, and this one hasn't come out yet. Uh, I, oh, I've I love it.
1: Give me an advance. So, I, so, yeah. so
2: we, inter- we interviewed this husband and wife couple. Um, their name is Craig and Annie Stoll. Uh, Craig won the James Beard Best Chef Award or something, and, and, but Annie really runs the business. So they have a little seven-person kind of chain in the San Francisco areas. They have 4 kind of high-end pizza parlors, and uh, three other restaurants, one's called Laconda. and, and so the most interesting thing there for dealing with and fighting friction was they had this rhythm to their work, and we we're talking about this a little bit earlier, and, and everything from Annie wakes up, it's six in the morning, They got seven stores, she looks at all the emails, she looks all the reservation books, and she sees what problems are ahead. And so the classic thing in that in that industry is alcohol and substance abuse. So she says, "I get the email from the two employees at four in the morning. They're not going to be in today. I know what's going on. I know that they're probably wasted. I might have to fire them, but I, and I know I've got an immediate problem to fill in. So so that and then there's the rhythm of the day, which is which, which is." When, you know, when, when the stuff arrives in the morning, when, when, they, have, when they, have the, they have two different, they have family meals, they have a meeting where they go through, and, and then they, they uh, each visit the stores or the restaurants in a sort of rhythmic basis. They, ha- they have training for all the new employees every four weeks. They just all together in one place. There's a meeting of, of the chefs from the, from the seven restaurants Every, I think it was every six weeks to share a recipe, and, and, the, and then there's seasonal menus.
1: I love that, all of this. This is all really interesting. Can I ask you something? How is it that the Stoll family, those two individuals, those entrepreneurs, can function on their own and be so creative and manage themselves and build this amazing empire I, and the rest of us can't, right? The rest of us need bosses and people to tell us how to run. Well,
2: our- but but, but it's, ve- it's very hierarchical. I yeah. hate to tell you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can't let it go.
2: <laughs> the, the, they they own it. But 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 what it does is it, it reduces. It doesn't yeah. eliminate.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, and then the other thing we didn't talk about, this is very important, uh-huh.
1: it,
2: is, is that, and this is Chip Conley's point too, is that the more that you brainwash people, so that the more that people who you hire... And you brainwash them, you know, the military, McKinsey, pick your, uh, they're, oh,
1: they're yeah. both they're,
2: they're they're about the same. Yeah. <laughs> about the same. Yeah. It's like a, it's a lifetime affliction after you've gone through the, you know, three months in those organizations, right. everybody knows how they're supposed to behave for better or worse in the same situations. So they do a lot of onboarding um, and training that she says they do more than some of their competitors. So, mm-hmm. but Craig and Annie are in charge. There's the restaurant managers, there's the chefs, Got it. There's, uh, th- there's people who are in charge of shifts. I mean, the restaurant business is pretty hierarchical.
1: It is, it is. But I wonder who um, Annie and Richard take orders from. They don't need anybody telling them what to do, right? And I just wonder what makes they, it so special and the rest of us like needing that hierarchy. That's all. Well,
2: well, well but, but there's also, it isn't just hierarchy. So like there's the peer part. So, yeah. so Craig, Craig goes oh, to Craig. Italy uh, like two or three months a year to try to get the latest trends. So one of the restaurants called La Conda, mm-hmm. That was because he he got obsessed with Roman cafes and he wanted to sort of replicate and create a California cated version of a Roman cafe in the Mission Dis- district in San Francisco. Oh, so that so that's yeah. So peers are very interesting, but 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 to go back to the the sort of friction thing, uh, so that so so that's they're spotting the sources of friction and they, and because of the rhythms, they sort of stick out.
1: Yeah, so, that so, makes sense yeah. to me. So is there etiquette to friction? You talked a little bit about hierarchy, right? So are there rules of friction when friction is good and applicable in an organization and also when friction uh, is getting in the way? So what, what are some of the rules and etiquette
2: well, well, about that? I don't know if we have, but we, I, the best I can do is insights. So if- Yeah, you, please. Uh, so so I, I, was, I was sort of thinking about this um, a little bit a little bit before, but in, in, in some of the things that that really um I think are striking to us is first of all, let's look at it sort of from management's perspective. That, um, th- that there there's certain things that they need to be aware of that are problems in the system that cr- can create friction. The first thing, and we've talked about the dysfunctions of power. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues calls, that, Perry Claiborne calls this the cone of friction, that, that, that they sort of don't realize that everywhere they're going, they're just creating hell for other people because they're saying things that are offhand. They're ordering people around. They don't realize how long it's going to take for them to do it. Uh, I, very early in my career, there was this weird incident. I was working with the Southland Corporation, 7-Elevens, where the CEO went, uh, went in and experienced rude behavior at the store and had a temper tantrum. This set off two years of all sorts of work to get a rudeness in 7 stores he didn't even know about never intended. It's they un- and we've all seen this they unintentionally yeah. create the, is my friend Perry calls it the cone of friction so that's it's almost that's like
1: vomit like they vomit and it just hits oh. everybody yeah I know. i've worked for that person many times and so i know and many of our listeners probably have too where someone comes in not only do they ruin the course of your day they just upend all the good work that you've been doing right because they've had one experience and it just touches everything suddenly for no Flippin' reason. so I get that. They, make
2: a, they come in late, late, and ignorant, basically.
1: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> then the other thing, which is more of an incentive thing, that 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 we see, we especially see it in our own university, Stanford, but we see it everywhere. And uh, and there's all this incentive for adding, and there's no incentive for removing anything. And so so we call this in um, very academic language uh, the George Carlin problem after the comedian, and he has this great routine on shit and stuff, and he says. It's essentially, let's see if I get this right, oh, your stuff is shit, my shit is stuff. So what, the way this translates in a place like Stanford, which is a relatively decentralized organization, is everybody's got their pet project, procedure, routine that they want to add to the system. Like, I don't know, making teaching evaluations more complicated than they ever were and somebody gets the power to do it. Um, and, they, and there's nobody subtracting because all of us whatever little thing whatever little procedure what extra question we want to add to the survey nobody subtracts so yeah, that's
1: I get that absolutely I get it
2: so sort of a tragedy of the common. so that's one of the things that 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 we we're, we're really look, really looking for and and related to that in both of these are get boiled down to self awareness and system awareness mm-hmm. So understanding the relationship between what you do and what the system is doing to you. So
1: So I went back and looked at some of your older podcasts and listened to a few of the ones in Friction. And I wonder if my listeners wanted to go and really understand the core of what you're trying to accomplish. Can you make a recommendation on a couple of episodes that they might be interested in?
2: oh so well uh Patty McCord of Netflix flame, fame I would definitely listen to her she is um,
1: sassy I don't know how she was on your podcast, but I've seen her speak and she just says what's on her mind I love her oh one. boy
2: boy she's yeah. is she, is she we, we have her in for executive ed she just argues with people from hr uh, <laughs> she's she's remarkable um in fact she and I had an argument which is a little bit like the little Tiff that we had earlier, which is she doesn't believe in hierarchy as much as I do either. She's you throw in fully formed adults, and if they don't fit, you fire them. Well, there's some hierarchy because you're firing them, but mostly that's that that's her model. Um, and and then Kim Scott also is is uh, very interesting, of radical candor fame, and and, um and one of the ones that I didn't expect, I had this uh, research assistant. She's now 25, named Rebecca Hines. She's a young, brilliant Canadian. She's 25. I think she's been involved in five startups and sold a few of them and she's full-time at Dropbox. She's remarkable. She's really, even by Stanford. I am
1: am so lazy compared to everybody else in this world. Don't you feel that way sometimes when you see these young upstarts who have just, they're so accomplished before the age of like 21, let alone 25. It's just, she's
2: honestly, even among Stanford students, she's just, but but she's also nice. She's Canadian. Yeah. Good. (laughs) so, 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 uh so, I got, I, so she started looking into sabotage and in ways that it caused friction. And, and so she had this notion that she called lick the cookie. So in general, this is looking for bottlenecks to cause people and processes to cause everything to jam up. And so and so what lick the cookie means. This is when an executive, so it's sort of like, you know, a little kid, you lick the cookie so nobody else would eat it. What an executive does, and she used some examples of Google, is that there'd be a new product development effort. And some executive who already had too much to do already would say, "That's mine. I have authority of that." And then what happens is, under the lick, of the cookie is nobody can get anything done because everything's got to be approved by this guy, and he doesn't have time to pay enough attention to it.
1: Oh, and that's and so, almost every job everywhere, isn't it? Holy smokes! Yeah,
2: <laughs> and, oh, and, and, the cookie. Yeah, that, but that's an argument to your point, yeah. for delegation and not excessive management control, and it's one of those things that causes unnecessary friction and slows velocity, especially in large organizations, but then it's, you know, this is this organizational design problem, then if you decentralize too much, you get all this sort of crazy stuff happening, but eventually you got to integrate it, so, the, so, so to me, you know, top dog on the tightrope, senior executives, they're always struggling how much can I let them go, and then when do we find? And it may not be through authority. We've got to sort of integrate what's going on.
1: God, it's such an interesting conversation around that uh, that tightrope, right? That walk around structure yes. and art and creativity. As we wrap up today, I want to talk about something that's a little personal to me. I've been studying for the past couple of years the art of failure, right? That's very invoked. Yes. On trend, and from Google to I don't know, name your Silicon Valley startup to New York based startups, everybody wants to fail forward, fail faster, and they celebrate failure. And you know, I'm just a Little woman from the Midwest, I'm 43 years (laughs) old, right? I don't believe that failure is necessarily a good thing, but I don't want to run away from it either. What I want people to do is to fail in new and interesting ways. Like, stop failing like the asshole you were five years ago and fail in a new way, right? Demonstrate some growth. So, I wonder as we wrap up, can you tell me your just general take on this trend of failure and how should we be thinking about failure? Maybe as healthy adults, like, what's the right way?
2: Well, so just an initial comment that if if somebody makes the same mistake again and again, and they're not learning. But that's that's, most
1: of us. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And so since you're a Midwestern, my uh, favorite, I went to University of Michigan PhD program, even though I'm a Californian. There's a guy named Carl Weick, now retired, uh, probably the most imaginative organizational theorist. And his argument is, um, am I a success or a failure? Am I succeeding or failing? Is not a very useful question. His question is, what am I learning? And, and I think that's a, the same philosophy to me you just described. Uh, who cares if you're succeeding? If, if you're learning, you're cool. And, and then, and then uh, two other points uh, I have on failure, which are kind of consistent with your notion that pure celebration is kind of idiotic, um, which is that it always hurts. I'm really sorry. And, and so uh, Diego Rodriguez, who's now at Intuit and was IDEO for years, we taught together at Stanford and we, it, 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 in this notion that failure is something that should feel good, it hurts. And so, so Diego's, mo- so he says, I invented this. I say he invented it, that um, failure sucks, but instructs. And it it just, it, I, I don't know, I, I don't even like watching my enemies fail. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a painful thing. It is. And, and then the third point, and so this is on uh, some McKinsey, we did a McKinsey interview, Huggy and I, with Ed Catmull of, um, of Pixar fame. He's the president of, of Pixar and the president of Disney Animation Studios. And He had a great point about failure, which he said, so, so when you ask people about failure, they'll say, oh, the most important lessons in my life I've learned from failure. But then when you ask, you know, they look back, so there's a time horizon. But then he said, when you look forward, Nobody ever wants to fail. Like, 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 do we just for example, right now we're doing this podcast. We don't want to do a lousy podcast. We don't don't don't. want to technical glitch and lose it. We don't want to fail.
1: No, not at all. And And I didn't plan when I started out thinking about this podcast to fail. You're absolutely right. I'm not planning. No, no, that would
2: suck. And then, and then there's one other distinction, which is more conceptual. And this is back to Diego Rodriguez. When he was at IDEO, He asked his clients, where's your place to fail? So, um, so there are some situations, product development, prototypes, I don't know, a pilot where uh, a concept car where failure is just fine, but there are some situations, let's say flying on an airplane or getting, um, or, or getting, uh, uh, the surgery you just had. No, I don't want them failing.
1: And, <laughs> no, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So, so this idea that, 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 uh, that, that failure in, in sort of a routine, possibly dangerous situation, uh-uh. So, so and, and that's one of the problems I'm seeing, by the way, Tesla would be a good example of this. And then this, this horrible thing that happened, Theranos, they, and that was re- what really brought down Theranos. And you're seeing problems with uh, Tesla, too. They're taking the logic of experimentation and they're putting it in situations where it's not ready. And yeah, they're, and they're, they're
1: scaling starting. failure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry. To scaling say-
2: failure. <laughs> that's 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 a perfect way to put it. So yeah, I, I really think. Are.
1: That absolutely. Yeah.
2: I think you and I are on a similar wavelength about this failure and, and it, it it's necessary, it, but it hurts so much. It at least does to me. hurt.
1: It hurts. It hurts so much that I don't even want to tell you the story about how I had a startup based on trying to beat failure, which is like the most ironic and meta thing in the world. And yeah, so it I is. failed at failed. I failed at beating failure. I mean, I, I don't even want to tell you, I'm so embarrassed about it, but yet I learned so much from it. And I tell people like I learned a ton of lessons Yeah. But going forward. I'm not planning on being that stupid ever again. Right. <laughs> you know, but well, I do. about a concept called pre-mortem and that's what it was based on. So trying to envision failure before you start and reducing your chances of failure during the process. And that is a useful cognitive experiment for me. So in planning for this podcast, I thought about all the ways in which I could ask you questions that were stupid and get it wrong. And it forced me to do my research, which is why hopefully I wrote good questions
2: for you. You wrote very good questions. Thank you. Thank
1: you. So, I mean, the pre-mortem has been helpful, but Other than that, I don't ever want to think about failure ever again, Bob.
2: (laughs) But we'll we'll think about it or not. We will both face it again in our lives and we'll look back and say what we learned and try to avoid in the future. And we'll (laughs) give
1: a lot of platitudes about it. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, Bob, it's been such a joy. I'm such a fan girl. So thank you for indulging me. I really appreciate it. And I want everybody to know where they can find you on the internet. So what's the best way to find you?
2: probably bobsutton.net, which is, uh, you know, my personal website or uh, work work underscore matters on Twitter. So that's probably the best
1: Let me ask you one question. How long have you been blogging?
2: Well, it's kind of weird because I blogged intensely from probably 2006 to 2011 or so. And then I kind of faded off. And then I put an occasional post on LinkedIn. I, I, I'll write one today because I have a podcast coming out. But I, I, I was just obsessed with it for about six or seven years, and then I just sort of drifted off. I don't know what happened. Yeah, so me I,
1: neither, I, I, neither, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I asked you that because people ask me all the time, how do I start a blog? And I know you're a veteran, and I tell them, don't, like, don't start a blog. <laughs> Why would you do that? It would go right on LinkedIn or go right on Medium, but don't like invest in a URL. That's a pain in the ass and an old way of communicating. But I didn't know if you had any advice for anybody out there for that very frequent question that I get.
2: Yeah, you know, well, I, I think your uh, your advice is so, so. Now I'm sort of occasionally putting things on Medium or LinkedIn and stuff, and but it is a but even just maintaining my old URL, own URL is kind of a pain actually. Yeah. And I have an old Work Matters blog. that's – I I don't know, I, I don't know how many uh, posts I did. A couple. 3,000 posts to sort of sit there, uh, but, but it's uh, good.
1: It's good for the internet. I'm sure people stumble on it every now and again and feel like they've learned. So that's good that all of your archives are out there. Well, listen, yeah, out there. I really appreciate your time today and thank you so much. It was a joy to get to know you and everybody. We'll be right back at the end to wrap things up.
0: Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said everything. Book a call with the podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net
1: slash podcast. And we'll take it from there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bob Sutton. God, I am such a fan of that man. He is a rock star in his creative thinking And really, just someone you should read and someone you should connect with on the internet. So please, go listen to his podcast called Friction. It's super good. Connect with him on LinkedIn. Tell him I sent you. And while you're at it, connect with me at Let's Fix Work and L Rudiman. Now, Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino and Megan Doherty are not assholes, and they make me sound great week after week. We have marketing, social media, and content help from Gerson LaFleche. And I am so grateful for all of you who subscribe, rate, review, and share. If you haven't already, please give us a five-star review over at iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Don't be an asshole. Don't give me one star. If you don't like this podcast, just email me at hello at letsfixwork.com. That's all for this episode. I hope you like the show. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of
0: Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at LaurieRudiman.com slash DIYHR.